Hey guys, Adam here. You're about to listen to an interview I did with Cody Barbo from Trust and Will. I'm going to be really honest with you. During this conversation, probably four times, I forgot I was on the other side of this interview table. Like I'm meant to be the person asking him the questions. And the reason for that is Cody is an amazing storyteller. How clear he has his mission and vision for both his business and his personal life. I was absolutely in awe of being honest with you. We talk about that, we talk about mission, we talk about identity in terms of, actually, this guy got fired from his first venture-backed company, walked into a boardroom and got fired, and the impact that had on him, and how he's taken those learnings into who he is today. I think you're going to love it. Love to hear your feedback. Enjoy. And just before we hear the interview, a quick bit about Cody. He's an entrepreneur from San Diego and currently founder and CEO of Trust and Will, an easy, fast, and secure way to set up your estate plan online. Since starting the company in October of 2017, he's raised two rounds of capital, went through Techstars, lined up partnerships with Mass Mutual, Policy Genius, and more. He's completed the first electronic will in history and has helped tens of thousands of Americans kickstart their estate plan. Prior to Trust and Will, he served as founder and CEO of Industry, a LinkedIn for service and hospitality industry, where he took the company from idea to helping thousands of hospitality professionals move up in their careers with the platform. As Adam said at the start, Cody shares some fantastic stories. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview with Adam Callow and founder of Trust and Will, Cody Barbo. Cody, firstly, huge thank you for giving it your time today. How are things with you right now? Uh, Life in San Diego is good. It's an honor to be here. Uh, I got a beautiful new daughter upstairs who's sleeping. So that's allowing us to get some time on the podcast today. And uh, our business, despite the unfortunate economic conditions that we're living in, our business has been booming during the pandemic. So I'm excited to uh, share more about Trust and Will. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot about Trust and Will from, I guess, from a, I don't want to go as far as a platform disruptor. There's the, The segment that you're in, I think I'm really interested by largely because it's like a, what seems like a really boring, dull, uninspiring topic. And the way that you've communicated it out to your audience from the marketing comms that I've seen across with your website is something that people don't think about until it's too late. Uh, so I'm interested to learn more about that and then how you've approached the whole business model. Um, but before we get into that, I wanted to learn a bit about you. So do you want to give people a bit of a backstory of who you are, what you've done so far? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I've, I've been in California my entire life. So almost 31 years now. I've been in San Diego, California for 13 years. I uh, came down here for school and for the last, or uni, you guys call it uni. Um, yep. college. Yeah. And for the last decade, uh, I've been an entrepreneur. This is my third business, my second venture-backed company. I've hired over 100 people over the last decade. I've raised over $10 million between two startups now. And I've been very proud of the success that I've achieved uh, professionally, but I'm also very proud of my life at home, which is married to a beautiful woman of three plus years now, beautiful daughter, great dog, and a great lifestyle here in California. So just really honored to uh, be able to be on this path that I am in life and to be able to share it with some of your listeners. Absolutely love that, mate. And I guess one thing that absolutely... Uh, cherish about what you've just said, I will go as far as I say cherish, is the appreciation you've got, not just for this business success you've got and how it overall packages up into your lifestyle. Um, that's really good to hear. You mentioned second venture back business. What was the first one that you were in? Let's have a, have a quick gander around that. What happened there? What, what was the business? Yes, what did it do? It's a great question. So uh, 2013, after my first startup failed because we had no idea what the hell we were doing, no business model, uh, we, I, I worked in a restaurant. 
And when I worked in this restaurant, it was kind of a classy joint, really nice restaurant, 160 employees. And we worked for one of the biggest restaurant groups in the country here in the US. And I was blown away that nobody used LinkedIn. Like not even management was using LinkedIn. And I'd seen a network for the military, a network for healthcare professionals, all venture backed. And I was like, in the United States, one in 10 Americans works in a restaurant, bar, nightclub, or hotel. Like, how is there not a LinkedIn for hospitality? And why are restaurants dealing with such high turnover? They don't use LinkedIn, they stick to Craigslist or accepting a paper resume. So we set out to go build the LinkedIn for hospitality. So building a place where people could showcase their skill sets through photos and videos. So for a lot of bartenders and chefs, that's their way that they speak. It's through their food and drinks, not through their resume. Mm -hmm. And then for the restaurants and bars, they have this huge problem with turnover. So a lot of the times they're not hiring for culture. They're not hiring the right person the first time. And the mistakes can really add up in cost. So helping surface those costs and streamline processes for even the smallest restaurants even though we worked with some of the biggest restaurant groups in the country. So over the course of three and a half years as founder and CEO, built up a team of 25. We we're servicing about 12 markets in the United States. And with each subsequent round of venture capital, we were looking to expand that. And we were really proud that we had helped uh, tens of thousands of people find not just great jobs, but great career opportunities. That if they were starting as a dishwasher, they knew the path to make it to executive chef. They started as a host, they had a path to management. And we were really investing in the content and education to help people uh, looking for this as a career, but also the restaurants that we're hiring on their platform. And uh, it was a great run, despite the outcome, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah, I want to get to the outcome in just a second, but just talk to you about what that was like the first time you ever raised venture capital. Uh, and I guess it sounds like you didn't in the previous business that you self-proclaimed uh, as a failure. What made you then look down the venture capital route for this business? Let's start with that. Yes. Yeah, so timing and geography, I think, were two bigger factors, but also just being young. I was a young entrepreneur. I was 21, 22 when we started the first business. And we were doing a social media app called Niche that was kind of like a Pokemon Go for content. So Snapchat had just come out. It was weird that they limited the content to 10 seconds. We're like, what if you limited a location? And if you physically entered that location, it unlocked it, whether it's your favorite bar, your house, the music festival, so you kind of got that FOMO. If you didn't physically go there, you couldn't see what was happening. That's pretty cool. Day. Even just the way you explained it, that yeah. sounds pretty cool. <laughs> so it was ahead of its time. Uh, we have an uh, older angel investor community in San Diego that at the time pitching a very forward thinking social media app to a bunch of 60 year olds whose kids might even be older than I was at the time, hmm. uh, didn't really resonate with them. So I think if I would have pitched that first business in Silicon Valley, it would have been responded to quite positively. But a 22 and a 21 year old co-founder, we didn't really have a business model other than we think it'll work. Yeah. Uh, and you know, a year, year and a half in, we we're just like, this, this isn't going to work out. And we kind of fizzled it out, but it was okay. We learned a little bit through that with industry. The second company, we kind of did the traditional fundraising round. We went to a family friend investor, got our first 50,000 that allowed us to hire an engineer and a designer. We built uh, what I call a really beautiful uh, duct tape model where we had a product that kind of worked, but it looked good. And we went to all the local restaurants, hustled, knocking down doors, introducing ourselves and got enough businesses on there to have some traction, which we could communicate to investors. But they said one thing, this is better than Craigslist. And that was our benchmark. Craigslist is the most used hiring tool for all restaurants in the United States. So we're like, if we're better than Craigslist, there's something here. So we leveraged that 50K, that little bit of traction and uh, early validation 
to go raise a quarter million from a couple of angel investors. They were just kind of loose introductions from our media network. But that quarter million really allowed us to do a couple of things. First and foremost, pay ourselves. So I think I was just about to propose to my now wife at the time, so I had a little bit of money coming in. So she was cool with it. From there, we were able to hire a CTO, actually grow the team and pay ourselves a little bit. And it was through the next six to 12 months that we completely redid the app from scratch, had some meaningful traction here in San Diego and another market uh, in Southern California. And that's when we went out and started pitching venture capital investors. We ended up raising $2.3 million in our seed round. So you raised the seed money. And I guess before I want to carry on with the journey, I, I, I was about to start making a note, but I thought I'd just jump in here and ask, what is your skill set at Curiosity Cody? When you, when you speak about what you've done to date, if someone says to you, like, what are you best in class at? As you think of yourself as an entrepreneur, what is your, what is your skill set? Selling the vision backed with authenticity. I'm not selling smoke and mirrors. There's no fluff. It is a compelling vision of what the future of an industry can look like, whether that's the service and hospitality industry. Now with trust and will, it's the estate planning industry. And being able to persuade co-founders, team members, investors, partners, customers, anybody, press, uh, you know, the people in the press, anybody that could positively have any thoughts on what we're doing, but getting people to care, like actually getting people to give a damn about hospitality, which is blue collar, or in this case, estate planning, one of the oldest, most out of touch industries that hasn't had any innovation for 500 years. And getting people to care about what you do, a complete stranger is one of the strongest things. Now, getting somebody to join you on this journey as a co-founder, they have to be crazy as you are. Getting a team member to join your organization, especially those first five to 10 hires that are foregoing potential six-figure jobs at well-paying companies to join you in the journey. Getting a professional investor, whether it's an angel investor or a venture capitalist, a professional investor to write you a check for $100,000, million, $10 million dollars. And it takes a lot of adaptability. And for me, it's taken almost a decade to get really good at polishing this skill set and something that I'm not done with. I want to continue to enhance and learn and be better at it. So that's something that I would say is my kind of secret weapon. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I asked it in a sort of leading sort of way internally because the way that you communicate uh, and storytell, uh, I find it really impressive. And I was just wondering, how did you learn that craft over the last 10 years it goes back to college and even back to high school. So I was kind of a geek in high school. I still am a geek. I've come full circle. Uh, I was a geek in high school. I used to I used to cut class to go watch Steve Jobs' keynotes when he released the first iPod, when he released the first iPhone, all of the amazing products, iPad that Apple has launched over the last 15, 20 years. I would cut class to go watch these keynotes and I'd watch them two or three times over. One, because I wanted to buy whatever he was selling, but two, masterful storyteller. Apple is the king of kings of selling the why versus the what. Mm -hmm. Every year they come out with a new iPhone. It's not that much better than last year's iPhone, but you like immediately want to throw your current iPhone away and get the new iPhone because it's that much better in how they sell it and package it. And Steve Jobs to me is one of the greatest salesmen of all time. And I, I see a lot of that with Elon Musk now, uh, despite his you know polarization on his Twitter. And I was like fascinated by that. So that was kind of my one of the idols that I had looked up to. And then when I was in college or in uni, uh, I was a leader in many organizations. So I was kind of breaking out of my shell my freshman year. By the time I was a junior, I was president of my fraternity. We had 150 members. 
And these are competitive roles. You're running against people that you're very close to. Uh, so yeah, so you have to set a vision. You have to get everybody on board and you have to be realistic with what that next year looks like. Because in student, when you're a student leader, it's only a one-year term usually, and then you move on to the next thing. And by the time I was a senior at the university, I was student body president. So it was kind of a unique role in that we served as chief executives for a year under this $30 million umbrella organization to the university. And we had 80 full-time employees. We had 1,000 part-time employees, managed and operated seven on and off campus facilities. And that whole year being exposed to our most successful alumni, our most successful uh, administration and faculty staff, and surrounded by students that were just incredibly inspiring, that wanted to make a better campus experience, launch new initiatives. I just kind of rewired my brain in terms of how I think, how I function, how I operate. And that's what's kind of put me on this path as an entrepreneur now, uh, 11, 12 years later from those roles and being this way. I absolutely love that. And I think um, the reason I asked the question is I think that's one of, I'm an actual salesperson. Uh, I, I love to sell. I love marketing. Uh, and one of the things that I think I need to improve on as a CEO is the vision setting. I think that's uh, probably something that's undervalued internally. I'm like, ah, that's all. It's okay. It's okay. Everyone just get yeah. behind me and follow. Uh, but I've realized we keep hitting a ceiling of about 12 or 15 people. And then only last year I realized culture within a business happens, whether you like it or not. Uh, we weren't really making a, uh, I don't want to say we, we didn't care about it, but we weren't making enough time to develop and define our culture. So we let our culture yeah. get, get away with us and we had to make some highs and some fires. Um, but I just, uh, the only reason I wanted to bring it up is just from speaking to you for the last five or 10 minutes, I just get a feeling that you've crafted a skill of storytelling and vision setting over, over a substanti substantial period of time uh, and it comes across. Um, I appreciate that. Talk to me about what happened in, in that business. So you've raised a, a number of rounds of venture capital. Uh, we're talking about industry here, the first company where you raise VC. Uh, yeah. We've had a, a quick chat before jumping on the mics and you shared you shared what you classed as a blip in your career. And I absolutely love the honesty that you approached this with. Do you want to just talk me through what happened in that so we can see what learnings we've got for the audience? Yes. Yeah, so we raised our seed round at industry in October of 2016. And for the next seven, eight months, things were going great. We grew the team from five to 15 to 23 to 25. I think of the different tranches of hiring. we launched several new markets. We're starting to get some big partnerships, get some big customers. And I uh, came into the office on June 15th, 2017, and I had a sales call in the morning. I knew the investors were in town, uh, but went into the boardroom thinking that we were gonna review finances because that was what was communicated to me. And my co-founder, uh, who was on the board, myself, my co-founder, and the investor, handed me a stack of papers, said, Cody, uh, it's been a great run. Today's going to be your last day with industry, your last day with company. And I thought it was a joke at first because, I, I mean, these guys built this business with them for, you know, several years. And I'm, like, opening up my laptop, pulling up the, the spreadsheet, and they, I realized they weren't joking. And rather than get... Uh, reactive, defensive, kind of just paused and thought inside my head. I'm like, what, what do I ask here? What is, what is going on? And I flipped it back to them. I said, well, hey, look, if this is a decision you guys are going to make, I need to know a couple things. First and foremost, why? Like, why is this decision you've come to? Two, 
this is three months, two, three months after our last board meeting. Why was my performance never brought up? If my performance was an issue, it's the job of the board to communicate that. So it's just as much as a failure of lack of leadership on their part, it is mine. So I didn't hear anything there. And it wasn't anything that I did wrong. I mean, that company was my lifeblood. My identity was associated with it. And rather than me leave the organization, I kind of countered them in the moment, which I don't think they were prepared for. I said, hey, look, I don't think you guys understand the decision that you're making here. Let's go ahead and let's put one of you as the placeholder CEO, whether we're going to move forward with one of you full time or we're going to recruit somebody outside and let, let me stay on the organization in a role that better suits my skill set. And I wasn't given that opportunity. So I countered one final time and will say, hey, look, if this is a decision you're going to make, at least let me stay on the board because this is an organization I've been with for three and a half years. I think about it all day, every day. Let me at least continue to see the success of this because I had equity in the company, a vested equity stake, and wasn't given that opportunity. So there's, there's uh, once I realized what was in the documents, I had to get an attorney involved. It wasn't pleasant experience, but it wasn't something that I wanted to go after the company. I didn't want to jeopardize my equity stake in terms of what the outcome of that business could be. And I had some self-realizations. One, you're the CEO. When you're the CEO, you have to accept all responsibility. And if the board feels this way, that's the decision they're coming to, then so be it. But I also really learned about how important the board structure is, board composition, board training, how to foster leadership development, when to step aside as a leader and to replace yourself or to put someone stronger in the position. And I just was, uh, I felt betrayed uh, more than anything because these were friends, not just business partners. And these investors, less than, or I guess a little over half a year from putting in a couple million bucks into the company had such a change of heart on what they thought was the best move here. And I'll, I'll take a quick pause because there's some things that I want to communicate happened with after the business, but I'll pause there. Yeah, I want to I want to dig in in terms of the learnings on a on a selfish perspective, actually, on my side from a from a board level. Uh, I actually mm -hmm. had a I had a conversation with a friend of mine probably about two years ago, eighteen months ago. We're about two years into after having raised some venture capital. I said I feel like mine my board meetings are the only board meetings that feel like like that. Um, and I, I can go into what that means later on and we can discuss it because there's some key learnings I would I would love to pull away from you. Um, but I guess one thing that you said that sort of struck a chord with me is you said the industry was tied up, like you personally and industry felt like the same identity because you put your heart and soul into it for so long. Talk to me about that and how you dealt with it after the fact because the business that I'm in, I am so close to it. I feel like I am the business. Yeah. And when you were telling me that story, I, I kind of put it through my head and said, well, what if this happened to me? And like, it's that identity piece that I'd struggle with when I wake up the next day and look in the mirror, I would personally feel extremely lost and not to put words in your mouth, but that's how I'd feel. How yeah. did you, how did you manage that process? Yeah, I think what's changed since then is now I think of, I bring my whole self to work and my whole self home. I am one and the same with that, but my identity isn't trustable. My identity is now tied to a purpose. My purpose in life is to help as many people I can through whatever organizations that I'm involved in. And with industry, I was too tied to the brand and not enough to the mission, even though the mission I was, but I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I think that when I had that opportunity taken away from me, I lost some of my identity because I thought, that industry was me and I was industry. And it really hurt to not be able to literally promote industry in every walk of life, in my communication, 
in the people that I was meeting with, my traveling, any connection digitally or in person. And I just, I felt like I lost a family member to some extent. It was kind of a weird, a weird transition I went through. Now, the problem, the reason why I bring this up is that I had a full month from the day that I was let go to the day that I announced it to my network where I couldn't talk to anybody about it. The only people that knew was my wife, my parents, and my brother. That was it. Uh, and the, obviously the company, the employees of the company. But because I had to get an attorney involved, I couldn't make a statement. And once we got the, comp, the paperwork signed and I wrote this LinkedIn post, it's on my LinkedIn, it went viral. It got 25,000 hits within a couple days. I was on the front page of the business section of the newspaper here in town. And I was really nervous to hit publish. But the outpour of support as a response to it was unbelievable. Like I never fully appreciated the community that I built around me, the knowledge and experience I built as an entrepreneur and what opportunities it surfaced. So I think that it was for the first time in a month from that day happening, I felt like my identity and brand, Cody Barbo, was actually always there. I just never disconnected it from industry. And that was kind of a very uh, powerful day for me to be able to share that with my network and to kind of come back into myself. Yeah, I can imagine that feeling, just like say, completely empowering and then allowing you to move on to the next thing with clarity compared to like uh, that little bit of... I guess carrying negativity can be really dangerous overall. One thing that I am interested to sort of dig into is it's hard to ask the question, but I want to ask it is what mistakes did you make along the way in terms of potentially choosing the co-founder, the business partner, the investor uh, that you would with hindsight, with 2020 vision, when you go, actually there were some telltale signs or to flip it into a more positive light, what would you do differently or have you done differently with trust and will? Yeah, I don't think there were mistakes because, I mean, I, I truly had a friendship and loyalty to my co-founders, to the investors. I mean, they gave us an amazing opportunity, uh, at least for the eight months, seven, eight months post-investment to build a great company, to provide jobs to dozens of people, and to, by our work, help thousands of people get jobs in the hospitality industry. So I, don't, I wouldn't call it mistakes, but I think that the opportunities that surface or areas of interest is, uh, first and foremost, your corporate counsel. So your legal counsel, once you've raised outside money, especially venture capital, they do not work for you. They work for the company. I am just an employee of the company at that point, right? Even if I have a majority equity stake. So constantly thinking through what does my employment agreement look like? And what does my separation agreement look like? In the event, the unlikely event that the worst case scenario happens, which it happened to me, if I'm fired, what do I get? Do I get three months severance with pay and benefits? Do I have uh, an additional vesting of my equity? What am I doing to protect myself for the what if in terms of a worst case scenario? So that for me was really a big learning lesson in going into the next company or the next path in life, which is protect yourself. And it's not 100% uh, preventable. I could get fired at Trust and Will still, but at least I know how to have protected myself a little bit better going into that inevitable what if the worst case scenario happens. Now, best case scenario, which is now how I think about Trust and Will and our future successes, when you think of your co-founders and you think of your investors, setting expectations is such an important thing that if I'm ever not the right person to be CEO, let's put that person in place. I don't need to be, you know, pat on the back, sugar-coated, like I have thick skin now, having gone through that. Give me critical feedback. If I'm not doing something, if I'm not thinking about certain things, if I am falling, on my feet on certain areas of the business, call them out. Don't let it build up into this big narrative, call it out immediately. And that candor really goes a long way uh, for me to grow and develop as a leader. 
Love that. And I want to use this as an opportunity to segue into what you're doing now. And I guess how much of when you were just talking, I was hearing the words protect yourself and I was thinking, hold on, is there like an underlying thing here that the nature of what you do at Trust and Will is is allow mm-hmm. customers to think about protecting themselves uh, if if the worst should happen. How much of that played into your decision to get into Trust and Will? And I guess let's set the scene. What does Trust and Will do? Um, and yeah. then yeah, let, let's let's dig into it. I'm super interested to hear how you ended up the origin story to, yeah, to so the, this market. The silver lining to all of this happening is it was a segue into Trust and Will. So I, I wrote this LinkedIn post, it went viral. I uh, had some amazing job opportunities pop up. I was I was pretty actively looking at Amazon and Nike. Those were two companies that I wanted to go work for. Um, and you know, entrepreneurs, we don't we don't make money until the business hits a critical milestone in terms of revenue or or gets acquired or goes public. So we don't we don't make that much money, if I'm being honest. So I was like, okay, I'm about to get married. A nice salary and benefits sounds amazing, but is that who I am, right? So part of the outcome of writing this blog post and making this announcement to my network is that identity came back, that I wasn't industry, I was Cody. And is it me being true to myself to go get a job at a big company or is it being true to myself to start another one and to be resilient, do it again, prove to myself more than anyone that I'm a capable founder and CEO and entrepreneur. And I, I was kind of sitting on one idea that it still has not been pursued. So that might be the next company after this. But it was very timely that uh, I was a few months out from getting married. My wife and I had talked about our finances, life insurance, and do you have a will, which neither of us had. And my two co-founders, Daniel and Brian, were also uh, friends at the time. They come from a custom software development background, two very impressive young guys. And Daniel and I got coffee uh, August 4. 2017, so not even two months after the departure, probably a few weeks after the LinkedIn announcement. And he pitched me on this idea for Trust and Will. He's like, hey, like, what do you think about a TurboTax for estate planning, something that like people our age, which most of our friends were in our 30s to 40s now, married with kids, buying our first home, that makes it easy, affordable, and accessible. And, and my first reaction to it was, this is interesting. I have this on my to-do list. And then from there, as part of the discovery phase, how do we think about pursuing uh, an idea or exploring a new industry that we know nothing about? We're not attorneys by background, although we have one on the team. And we spent the next month, two months, basically doing a deep dive into trust and estates. How big is the market? How many people have an estate plan? How many people don't have one? What are the current uh, competitors? Do people mostly do this with an attorney? Do they go to LegalZoom? Are there other online players who are venture-backed? who are pursuing this with best-in-class design, product, customer support, and creating an ongoing subscription. And we just didn't find anything that was impressive, or at least at the caliber that we would expect for a product for ourselves. So we started you know, thinking through, this might be worth exploring. And the whole catalyst for how this company came to be is we entered San Diego's biggest pitch competition. They do it at Qualcomm, the big company Qualcomm's headquarters in front of 500 people, live audience. There's big cash money up for grabs and it's competitive. They get 200 startups that apply, only 10 make it on stage. We were one of those 10, ended up taking third place, got a big $5,000 check. And that was the snowball effect. We incorporated after, we had investors come up to us after that event. We had a Techstars, one of the top accelerators in the world, come up to us and encourage us to apply. And from there, Fast forward here, two and a half years later, it's been a rocket ship. Eight million raised to date, 18 people on the team growing to 23. We crossed 100,000 members this month. 
We've done some incredible stuff on the regulatory front. We did the first electronic will in U.S. history. So digital signatures, oh, wow. digital notary, digital storage of documents. And we've partnered with some huge companies like Charles Schwab, Mass Mutual, and many more. And we're still in the early innings of transforming an industry that affects every living person on earth, but in the United States, uh, roughly you know, 150 million people don't have this. So that's what we've set out to do. Just talk to me about the product. So when I uh, went down to, I did like a one-week accelerator at Google um, as part of this startup bootcamp thing, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And there was a guy down there. And when I was looking at what you're doing, um, I, I saw some similarities. And the the, the funeral space um, is uh, extremely painful and difficult to navigate. It hasn't been touched in hundreds of years. Um, there's no innovation applied to it. And I touched base with him probably 12 or 18 months later. And he desperately struggled to get people's attention for a product that just felt like, no, don't talk to me about this. Uh, this isn't going to change. It's been this way for so long. Nothing is going to change it. How do you tackle that on both fronts, whether it's from an investor perspective and then from a consumer perspective? Like, How do you get each one of those people to care about what you're doing? Yeah, so you think of the, your first 100 customers, your first 1,000 customers, right? That's pretty pretty popular blog post to see on a lot, of, a lot of companies. And it's been more popular and recent in the fintech space because there's just been this explosion of neobanks like Chime, Vara Money, Monzo, N26, New Bank, and a few others, what are the inciting incidents to get people to actually do this, right? Why does half the population in the US does not have an estate plan, but half does? And we started talking to a lot of our parents, but friends in our network that were married with kids, own a home. Didn't matter wealth, geography, age, it mattered when do they have kids. If they had kids, they had an estate plan, or at least they were thinking about it. If they were married or if they were single, not a priority. And that's the same for life insurance. Most people don't start to think about life insurance until they have a family or it's a benefit at work. Same way that we think about working with a financial advisor. And in the United States, most estate plan, uh, estate planning attorneys, they're going to charge you three to $5,000. It's going to take three to five weeks. Why is this not easier and more accessible and more affordable online? So we, we raised half a million. We went through Techstars. When we came out of the accelerator, we had a couple hundred, mostly of our friends. We just asked all of our friends that were married with kids to be a beta customer, beta, beta user. And we started getting really good feedback. And people felt like they had peace of mind that if the worst happened, at least there was someone appointed to look after their kids, let alone who gets their house, who makes medical and financial decisions on their behalf. And that was a big catalyst for us. And in TurboTax here in the US, they have 40 million customers every year that file their taxes online. That is the inspiration still to this day, two and a half years in. How do we get to a TurboTax level size business that 40 million Americans are creating their state plan online, they're managing their state plan with us, meaning they come back every year as life changes, they have more kids, they buy a home, something in the family changes. And then eventually, to your point about this entrepreneur that you met, when they die, how does the assets transfer over? Our vision is to be able to facilitate an end-to-end digital transfer of wealth from your home to your finance and investment accounts, your crypto, your emails, photos, everything transferring digitally and seamlessly to your next of kin. And the problem, to your point with this friend, that once they die, it's too, it's too difficult. You need to capture them sooner while they're still alive. Educate them, build the trust in the brand, build a comprehensive suite of product offerings so that by the time that they pass, You've now worked over 30, 40 years to facilitate a streamlined transfer of assets. Uh, I've seen two other companies pop up in that space. 
they didn't do very well. Um, however, in the UK, to their credit, we have, uh, I call them a sister company because we're friends with the founding team and leadership. There's a company called Farewell, farewell.com run by Dan Garrett. They have done a wonderful job of building a best-in-class estate planning product. Now they're moving into probate and uh, cremation services. And I give them a ton of credit for building a very streamlined process for this. And they've had great success. And we're, we're doing the same thing here in the United States. Sounds cool. I guess on a personal note, I've just had to deal with probate and it's took us 13 months to get to get all that sorted. It's been an absolutely terrible experience. Um, yeah. I, I guess we had a discussion about uh, Tristan Will um, as, a, as a team here at MBS. And one of the questions that came around the table is, we've, we've got two things, is um, one, this is a product that if you get wrong, do you know, like we have beta products and we can think about a technology, we have an app and it's like, oh, there's bugs in the system. Worst case that happens is you ask the customer to hard close it, reopen it, log the bug and we'll fix it. If you have a air quotes bug in your process, how do you get a customer over the line of making them feel like, actually, if, if the worst did happen, this is such a new company, I would rather pay the $5,000 compared to the for you guys. This doesn't feel like a product that you can launch with an MVP. The question that I've got is, did you and how did you get people to trust it considering though if you get it wrong, it's such a big problem for that family? Yeah, uh, I'm going to answer in a couple of portions. So first and foremost, we didn't roll out everything all at once. We raised our first half million, came out of the Techstars Accelerator. We launched a will, just a last will and testament, the simplest document in California and Texas, where we had our biggest networks from school. My co-founder went to Baylor. I went to San Diego State with my other co-founder. So our networks were in these two states. And those first couple hundred people were people in our network. And with the clear expectation, hey, even though this is a beta, this is our MVP, we have a 10-year estate planning attorney on staff who's giving his thumbs up on these documents that are being created. Estate planning in the United States is state-specific. The language is very black and white. There's not a lot of gray area because if you go to an attorney, they're giving you a fairly templated document. If you go to us, you go to even some some cheaper options, the language, the state-specific requirement language has to be there. There's no ways around it. The advanced estate planning, where you start to get into people that are high net worth or deal with uh, tax implications based on the size of their estate, that's when you need a team of professionals. That's when you, I, I hate to use the word loopholes, but there's so many loopholes in the tax code mm-hmm. and in the US law, the legal system here that you can find ways to get creative with protecting your assets and not being taxed on them, especially as they transfer between families. But in our best interest, we're thinking of the everyday family, a couple hundred thousand up to a couple million in assets. They own a home, they have investment in finance accounts, life insurance policy, and some family heirlooms. Pretty straightforward. And what we're doing is the way that you'd go to an attorney, you'd fill out an intake form. They hand it off to their paralegal. They're going to use estate planning attorney software to create these documents. We're doing the same thing with our software. You're going to get through from start to finish in 15 to 30 minutes. You can chat with our team. You can book a phone call. We're now offering attorney services in some states if you have the need to talk to someone. Mm -hmm. And we're generating you a state-specific set of documents all the way at the end once you've paid. Now, if you've made any mistakes, you can come back at any time, make those updates. If life changes, you can come back at any time, make those updates. The problem we are solving is how many Americans don't even have an estate plan, half the population, and what the cost is when you die. So probate, and you may know this, 
in the United States can cost anywhere from $25 to $50,000. So not only can you afford not afford a $5,000 attorney, now the government is going to take their cut on the transfer of assets. So it's much better to have something than nothing. And our job is that as we continue to raise capital, invest in our products, invest in our education, first and foremost, our members will never have an out-of-date estate plan. So every year we check in with them, hey, did anything change? And then we continue to add new products and services to support them as their estate grows. And then even when they die, that transition of assets. That's, that's how we're thinking through the full cycle from start to finish and on to the next family member. Makes sense. And I guess having that attorney on your team is a way to give people confidence. Outside of that 200-person network that you first go out to, how did you then start to acquire new customers? I'm always interested to know, how do you go from 200 to 1,000? What was that journey? Yeah, so we started uh, working on our social uh, media game. I mean, we were running ads on Facebook and Instagram. We took a very lighthearted approach. Brand has really mattered for us. We're called Trust and Will. It's trustandwill.com. From our accelerator to some of the venture investors we raised from, we knew that we had to boost our credibility. So uh, on top of that, our customer support has probably been the biggest reason why we've had five-star experiences with uh, our members now for two and a half years. And when we went from our immediate network to those kind of first couple hundred or a couple thousand strangers, it's just constantly testing the creative, the copy. And if the ad works, let's double down on it. If it doesn't, let's scrap it. And in addition to that, we really looked for opportunities to continue to build brand awareness. So we did a commercial spot, but I call it a budget commercial with a small video, educating people, introducing them to the brand. We continued to seek out press, whether it's tech press like TechCrunch and others in the tech community, or it was new partnerships. We worked with a new brand in the life insurance space to boost some credibility. And that for us was a really big validation to get people that were complete strangers to come to the site, go through the product, pay us, and still have a five-star experience at the end of the day. Yeah, I like that. I guess one of the things that I was trying to work out looking at your pricing model is LTV for you must be... I guess relatively unknown um, right now because you're expanding your product range. But how do you think about LTV as a customer? Because you said uh, if you take TurboTax as an example, that's a requirement to file taxes every single year. Right. Uh, there's no requirement to update my will and pay a fee every single year. How can you afford to pay acquisition dollars to get a customer um, and then make them profitable in the long run? How, what's your strategy around that? Yeah, look at life insurance. The life insurance space is massively profitable around the world, and you're paying monthly, quarterly, annual fee uh, to have coverage. So for us, estate planning is like a legacy insurance policy. It's an insurance policy on your life and assets beyond just some payout. And especially for who looks after your kids, I'll keep going back to that. doesn't matter how wealthy or how poor you are, who looks after your kids matters rather than the courts deciding. So we lean into the parental demographic, uh, I'd say the most. And one of the things we're constantly having to communicate to them is why they should choose us over someone else. And when we think about that acquisition cost, we can't just throw all of our money that we've raised from investors at acquisition on one specific channel. It can't just be social. So we've really opened up the funnel. We're doing uh, organic through our Learn Center. So we've invested in our SEO heavily. We're doing paid on Google, paid on social. We work with micro-influencers, so a lot of moms that have 1,000 to 10,000 followers getting their following into the funnel through product promotions. 
doing direct mailers. So things that we just literally send out in the mail, educating people on our brand and our product offering, and then working with channel partners and life insurance finances. Now, you know, two years later, we have a couple banking partners. We're partnering with some fintech companies and we've received a ton of press featured in most major US publications. So we've opened up that funnel because our number one job is to get a cold visitor to a site visit. And then we have site visitor to registration as kind of the second part of the funnel. And then the third part of the funnel is a registration to paid. And it's just, it's a huge effort to invest in these things because we have to improve our products, our ads, our team, uh, we have to increase our team size to support it from a customer success perspective and always measuring those conversions, conversion from cold to site visit, site visit to registration, registration to paid. And that helps serve as areas of opportunity for us to continue to invest in. And we're always monitoring our competitors too. What are our competitors doing that's better than us? Or what are we doing better than, than them? And that helps us kind of keep sharp and how we think about acquisition costs, because we have to build a profitable business. We mm -hmm. can't just be a, a VC money sucking business in perpetuity. So our goal is in the next year is strive for profitability, strong unit economics. And then to your point, really think through what that lifetime value could be. It might be 10, 15, $25,000 per member, thinking through what those uh, fees and how the new subscriptions we bring to market are introduced. Um, so always thinking about how to improve the business economics. Tell me about what the next five or 10 years looks like for you, Cody. Um, I guess as a, as a personal note, I've, I find you a really impressive individual and storyteller. Uh, I've, only known, I've only known you for just shy of an hour. Um, <laughs> obviously, I haven't looked into your background. It's been interesting. But um, the way that you communicate what you do and why you do it, I'm really enjoying it, to be honest. I think there's a lot of takeaways, not from just what you're saying, but how you're saying it. I'm interested, to hear, I'm interested to hear, like, what are you doing five, 10 years from now? Yeah, so our vision uh, has evolved for Trust and Will in the best of ways. I, I'd like to see in the next five to 10 years that Trust and Will uh, has, has basically gone public. We're a public company. We're helping tens of millions of American families create, manage, and distribute their estate plans entirely online. We've changed the regulatory framework in the United States for all 50 states to allow for an end-to-end -end digital estate planning experience, digital signature, digital storage, digital notary, and in addition to that, we are looking to build the most transparent and secure estate planning platform and market, which includes identity verification for the people creating the estate plans, identity verification for people named in the estate plans, creating an audit trail from creation through updates through death, putting in all the triggering activities to be able to facilitate that digital wealth transfer. So you don't have to go chase down your bank and insurance company, all this stuff. Everything is plugged in to an API and it is a seamless integrated experience. And people are very happy paying us an annual subscription, still getting that five-star experience and doing that all here in San Diego, California. Uh, it would be incredible to be able to look back in life and say that we built that and achieved that. And that's the path that we're on for the next you know, five to 10 years. Cody, I, I always try and summarize these in my head as I wrap up these interviews. I'm just super impressed with the clarity of your vision, mate. I, I, I really am. Uh, I think it's something that I aspire to do within our company. Um, if people want to learn more about you specifically uh, or Trust and Will, I, I get a feeling that a lot of people that are listening to this right now are going to want to follow you as, a, as an individual uh, and then learn about Trust and Will. Where can people go for both? Yeah, LinkedIn and Twitter for sure. Um, I post pretty frequently on LinkedIn. I think it's a great way to uh, see the content, see how I think about it as an entrepreneur, especially as the business evolves. 
And then for Trust and Mull, for US US listeners, trustandmull.com. I want to plug Farewell again in the UK, farewell.com. They're great over there. And even Willful Wills in Canada, if you have any Canadian listeners, those are friends. Yeah, we got a few. They're running equally successful companies. Um, But yeah, I'm, I'm constantly mentoring entrepreneurs. My biggest goal is in life outside of the business is to be able to invest in entrepreneurs, assuming that we have an outcome of acquisition or IPO. And right now I spend a lot of that time mentoring entrepreneurs to hopefully not fall into the cracks as I have done, Adam, as you've done and helping them build a successful business at the end of the day. So happy to be a resource for any listeners out there. Absolutely. Love that. feels like we're on a very similar trajectory or at least a goal. I'm uh, One of my goals is by the time I'm 40 to become an investor and coach to small businesses uh, and help yeah. them avoid the same mistakes that I've made uh, along Love my that. journey. Um, Cody, I could keep you here for another two hours, mate, and chatting, but I just want to say a huge thank you for your time today. Yeah, it was an honor. Thanks. 